As Mark uh, mentioned last week, the staff and elders over the course of this year are helping to remind us and to help us to take in a majestic view of God. And we're going to be considering how we are to live in light of what we can know about God. Because when we understand more about God, we should be compelled to live distinctly because of that knowledge that we have of him. So this week we'll be considering God's grace. And the question that should come to mind and that we should seek to answer from our text today is how are we to live in light of the understanding of God's grace? A grace is a word and a concept that defines Christianity. All Christians have a basic grasp of the word and its meaning. It is at the core of defining the gospel. There is no good news apart from grace. It's a word that permeates even our hymnody. I was looking at uh, the songs that we sing, roughly a third of the 100 songs that we sing here at Summit Woods on a regular basis have grace as one of the main themes of that hymn or that song. One familiar hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, the first verse, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where their blood of the Lamb was spilt. Verse 3, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive. And then the refrain is grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within and grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace is not a seldom used word in the Bible. We see it often. It's used 164 times in the Old Testament. 155 times in the New Testament. 100 of those uses is by the Apostle Paul. And in our book, the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the word grace 12 times. So I think we hear and see the word grace and we understand it's tied to salvation. Yet, I think that while we could define and understand the theological necessity of grace, we can often display functional ignorance of grace. We don't live as if we want or, or we do know that God's grace is true or that what we know of God's grace is true Uh, most of us and many of us are given to fear we're given to anxiousness some are not able to live out Christ's call to find his yoke easy we live as though God could never truly show us grace through Christ we live as though he will ultimately be retributive not merciful and gracious Many more, though, respond to life as if God's grace in the gospel is not enough to satisfy. They are discontent, they're unsatisfied, they're even angry when life doesn't go their way that they'd like, or they gain the status that they want, or the cultural love that they desire, or they live the life of ease and peace that they should deserve. Their view of grace is clouded because they have a clouded view of their plight in sin. They have a dim view of holiness 
and cannot grasp their slavery to the world, themselves, sin, and Satan. And so in order for us to fully understand grace, we have to understand unmerited favor. That's how the Bible defines grace. It's it's favor shown to those who in and of themselves do not deserve it. In a culture that preaches a view of self that deserves all, or what we want, or what we desire, or what we deserve, an understanding of grace is radically difficult. The New Testament use of grace is almost always tied to God's undeserved favor in salvation toward the lost. And in Romans 3, 23 to 24, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Grace, in summary, is the gospel. It's God's unmerited favor poured out on the lost and dead souls who apart from God's grace would remain lost and dead. A biblical understanding of the state of lost souls and the favor God extends to those who deserve none of it is vital to living in light of God's grace. So what are we to know and understand about God's grace and how are we to live in light of that grace? Well, that's what our passage helps to understand this morning. So in Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, Paul gives four facets of God's grace in salvation that are to define a believer's life. If we were to define our life by God's grace, then we should understand these four facets of it. We should define our life by these four facets of God's grace. So first, verses four to six, we're to live in light of God's gracious action in salvation. We're to live in light of God's gracious action in salvation. In verse four, if you have your text open, we see one of the most humbling, one of the most succinct, one of the most compelling, dramatic, undeserved transitional statements in all of scripture, but God. So for us to understand why, we need to hear what Paul says about the enormity of hopelessness that is the state of humanity in verses one to three. So look at those verses, look at verses one to three. And see how Paul describes all of humanity. He says that all of humanity is dead. All of humanity walks in trespass and sin against God. All of humanity are willingly led by the dead world's way of living. Which is ruled by the enemy of God who is Satan. The prince of the power of the air. In whose spirit marks humanity as sons of disobedience. And all of which was true of everyone, all of us. Humanity is marked by living according to the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and depraved mind. We were by nature children of wrath. That's the natural bent in the state of our heart to pursue sin and self and reject God and his life. That was the state in which we all once lived. But back to our text, but God... We who could not bring ourselves back from the dead, we who could not throw off that which was natural to us, we who could not flee from the bondage of sin and Satan, but God. But God, look back at verse 4, God who is abundantly merciful. 
a wealth of mercy. But God, in compassionate mercy that is driven by undeserved love, uh, there is no amount of explanation. There's no amount of um, helping us to understand in our finite minds or careful study. If we look at the preceding three verses and we see the description of those who willingly rebel as enemies of God, there is no amount of way in which we in ourselves could conjure up great love for a person like that. But God, in his great mercy, motivated by his abundant love for us, saved us. But God brought us out of our death, brought us out of enslavement to this world and Satan, and gave us a new identity away from being the sons of destruction and children of wrath. But God acted to save us by his grace. A grace that we see expounded in verses 5 to 6. Paul lists three gracious actions of God in salvation here that define his grace, that define the transformation that we should see in our lives by it. Three gracious actions of God in salvation. The first is found in verse 5. God made us alive with Christ. In his great mercy, rich mercy, in his great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That which was dead has been brought to life. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin have been given life. A life that is with Christ. As Christ was put to death physically, we were dead spiritually. But as Christ has been made alive physically, we have been given spiritual life with him. This new life will not end and anticipates a time when we'll find physical resurrection when Christ returns. In fact, John in his gospel, chapter 4, listen along as I read, verses 21 to 24, John recounts, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For even, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So in recounting God's gracious action to bring the dead to life, Paul burst out what I think we're probably all thinking, by grace we have been saved. What a grace. To quote one commentator, he says, God's response to sinners' plight is one of mercy. The motive for his compassion is his love for them. And the basis for his action is his grace. Paul is helping us to defeat any thoughts or approaches to life that would see our hand or our work or our loveliness as any means for God to save us. He does so solely on the basis of his grace. Grace, as we've already considered, is the unmerited and undeserved favor of God. And considering and looking back at verses 1 to 3, one cannot read verse 5 and following and not exclaim, what a grace this is. By what means have we who are dead to God been made alive together with Christ? It's by grace. God's grace. 
But saved by grace from what? Saved by grace from what? Saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God justly poured out on those who are dead in trespasses and sins. The sons of disobedience. The very children of wrath. So deserved because they follow the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. A salvation that is not only an age to come, but a present reality for those who have been made alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. What a grace that is. But look back at the text and see a second gracious action of God in salvation. Not only have we been made alive, but at the beginning of verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. Paul says, and raised us up with him. To further emphasize God's grace and salvation, notice that we who have been made alive together with Christ have been raised up with him. Literally, made alive with Christ and resurrected with Christ. As Christ has been resurrected physically, we who are in Christ are graciously resurrected spiritually. The Greek use of resurrection here in defining the gracious action of God and raising us up with Christ says that this is being true now. It's true for us now that we are resurrected. While it is true that we will be resurrected physically in the future, we have been resurrected spiritually and positionally with Christ now. It's true of us. Paul speaks of being raised with Christ in the same way in his letter to the church in Colossae as well. Uh, Colossians 2.12, Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead. In Colossians 3.1. Therefore if you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We have been raised with Christ. Who is seated at the right hand of God. The seat of power and authority. Of which all has been given to him. And we in whom Christ dwells have that same power in us to seek after the things that are above. God graciously acts in salvation to make us alive and raises us up with Christ. But there's also a third gracious action of God in salvation. Look back at at verse 6. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God seated us with Christ. Again, This is a reminder of the present reality for us in Christ. As Christ has been raised and seated by God physically, that's recounted back in chapter 1 verse 20, so too have we been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places spiritually. Now, heavenly places is used a number of times in this letter. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 3 It is the place in which God blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And in chapter 1 verse 20, it is the place in which God brought Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Being seated with Christ denotes a a completed action, a, a reality of position and authority with Christ. Our being seated with Christ in the heavenly places shows the heavenly rank and power we have in overcoming sin and death now. We are seated in the heavenly places solely because we are in Christ. And that union alone is the basis for our placement by God with him in the heavenly places. A key reminder 
from one commentator. He says, although we are in the heavenlies positionally, we remain on earth to live a resurrected life in connection with the resurrected Christ. We live as those who have raised, been raised and seated with Christ. Each of these three gracious actions of God in salvation, the, the making us alive, the raising us up and the seating us with Christ are the present reality for us in salvation. So how do we live in that reality? How do we live in light of God's gracious action in salvation? I think it would be helpful to ask a, a particular question. In what ways or situations do I lose sight of my former plight apart from God? Do I get so comfortable with the idea of being saved that I become prideful or arrogant or boastful or even ungrateful? Do I sometimes long to be like or in the world? Do the riches and excesses and seeming freedoms of the lost look enticing to me? We have to remember they are dead. They await God's wrath. They are by nature following the prince of the power of the air. They are sons of disobedience. They are children of wrath. Uh, maybe it's an opposite kind of problem. Maybe you're overwhelmed with the circumstances of life. Maybe enduring in the faith seems beyond your reach or joy is fleeting. Satisfaction in Christ is fading. Remember, bring to mind what God has brought you out of and into. He has mercifully loved you and by his grace he has given you life. In Christ when you were spiritually dead. He has by grace raised you up with Christ. And seated you in the heavenly places. You have been spiritually resurrected. And given power and position in Christ. You're no longer hopeless. By God's gracious work you've been given salvation. In fact that hope is the second facet of God's grace and salvation. That should define a believer's life. You're not hopeless, but you're hope-filled. The second facet is to live in light of God's gracious future hope in salvation. Live in light of God's gracious future hope in salvation. The reality of our salvation is that God has acted in giving us life here and giving us and raising us up and seating us with Christ in the heavenly places, but he has also graciously given us future hope in salvation look at verse 7 so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus God's gracious action in salvation toward us leads to his gracious purpose that we might live in the gracious hope we have in salvation why has he made us alive together with Christ? Why has he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places? It's so good when a question comes to our mind that we see a so that. We don't have to question. We're not left to wonder why God would be so graciously loving and merciful to save us. It is so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
But why do I call that gracious hope? Well, let's unpack that verse a bit. The reason God would graciously act on spiritually dead sinners, making us alive, raising us, seating us together with Christ, is that he might show or demonstrate his grace to us in the ages to come. Uh, This in some sense looks back at the chief purpose of God in creating man in the first place. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? And we could probably all cite it together to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. God in graciously acting in salvation toward us has overcome the penalty of sin and death in himself that we might fulfill the chief end to which we were created. Seeing God and the surpassing riches of his grace. It's not a small sight to behold. Paul uses two words to clearly emphasize the grace to be seen. He says that it's an extraordinary or exceedingly wealthy or abundant. It, they, they are surpassing riches of his grace. And it is a surpassingly rich grace that is in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, one commentator gives a great summation for us. He says, God will demonstrate the wealth of his grace in the sphere of that which is his goodness or kindness appropriate to God. This kindness is directed toward us. The work of kindness located in Christ Jesus is the wonderful salvation wrought by him and not by us. Because we are located in Christ, we were made alive with him, raised with him, seated with him in the heavenlies, hence the kindness of God toward us. Our own efforts would have been rejected by God but we are accepted because we are in Christ. God has so graciously acted so that we might rightly behold him. We might behold the depth and wealth of his grace and kindness because we are in Christ. But why do I call this gracious hope? Well, look back at the beginning of verse 7. When does the text indicate that God will show the surpassing riches of his kindness and grace, of his grace and kindness to us? It's in the ages to come. The preceding three verses of God's gracious action and salvation are are speaking of those gracious transformations now for those in Christ. And we can be encouraged because it is true of us right now that we're no longer dead in our trespasses, but we're alive in Christ. We have right now been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Those are all true of us now. Be encouraged and live in light of those realities. But what about beyond this life? That is verse 7. Be encouraged now, but also have great hope. Because in the ages to come, God's gracious actions now in salvation, you and I will be shown the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us the ages to come indicates the timing by which we will see this great display of God it is in the ages not now but it's anticipated they are to come they're future ages that are to come here and now we've been made fully alive with Christ and positionally we've been raised and seated up with him in the heavenly places but our view of those surpassing riches of God's gracious kindness is dimmed we're limited. We, we still bear the sinful limitations of our flesh. 
but there's an age to come in which we have a fixed future hope of seeing fully because we are in Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So do not be discouraged. Trust in the completed work of God. Live in light of his gracious action in salvation and remember the gracious hope we have in the ages to come in Christ. As a believer, any amount of time spent being encouraged by the truths of these verses should bring about a flood of joy and peace and hope and relief. Our souls can be lifted out of patterns of sin, of self-reliance and despair. We can be lifted out of any anxiety or anger or any number of thought patterns that lead us away from God. Because we have a hope that we're going to be filled with the full vision of God's grace and kindness toward us. We still can't fathom the fullness of the brighter view of what is to come though. And that is the kind of hope that this verse should stir in our our hearts. No matter how wide the vista of God's grace seems to us now, how much greater will it seem in the ages to come? Our best day of contemplating the gospel will pale in comparison with the view of God's gracious kindness we will have then. So live now with that hope in view. Flee from patterns of dependence on yourself or on others or on circumstances of life. Run from those thoughts of hopelessness and despair that cloud your view and dependence on Christ and live in the reality of God's gracious action and hope in salvation. Now look back at our passage and let's look and see a third facet of God's grace and salvation that define a believer's life. Third, we are to live in light of God's gracious, accomplished reality in salvation. We're to live in light of God's gracious, accomplished reality in salvation. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now we've seen God's gracious action in salvation, how he acted by grace upon those who were set against him dead sinners made alive raised up and seated with Christ and in Christ in the heavenly places Uh, we've been encouraged to consider the purpose of that gracious action that we have hope that in the ages to come God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus but by what cause is this true by what means is this accomplished How is this salvation made a reality? Well, that's the third facet of God's grace in salvation. His gracious, accomplished reality in salvation that we see in verses 8 and 9. And and these two verses give us two aspects of that accomplished reality of our salvation that should highlight God's grace. The first aspect of God's gracious, accomplished reality in salvation is that salvation is by grace through faith. See that at the beginning of verse 8. How is this salvation brought about? How is it accomplished? An accomplished reality for those in Christ? Well, it's because or, or for, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul's outburst 
that he had in verse 5 in response to God's merciful and loving and gracious action to make us alive in Christ is, is now being returned to. He's explaining the cause of salvation. It is by grace. We're, we're saved by grace, God's grace. And it's only on the basis of God's grace that we are saved. And it's only by God's grace that we are brought from death to life. We're brought from walking according to the course of this world to being raised up with Christ. We're brought from following the prince of the power of the air to being seated alongside God's son, Jesus Christ, in the heavenly places. We're brought from eternal separation from God to anticipating our continued eternal communion, marveling at the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace we are saved. But differing with verse 5, we also see the means of our salvation. If grace is the cause of our salvation, then faith is the means of our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The means of salvation is our trust or reliance in God for salvation. We rely on God's work already accomplished in Christ on the cross for salvation. We trust God because he is trustworthy. One commentator says, one is not automatically saved because Christ died, but one is saved when one puts trust in God's gracious provision. Faith is the means of salvation. Yet I don't want you to be confused and to think that our faith is a work that accomplishes salvation. Listen to Romans 4, 1 to 5. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Faith is not a work that saves, but a trust in the work of God that he has saved by his grace. God saves by grace through faith. Now look back at the text and see a second aspect of the accomplished reality of our salvation that highlight God's grace. Not only is salvation by grace through faith, but also salvation is God's gift. Salvation is a work of God's grace, which makes it a gift of God. To further emphasize salvation as a gift of God, notice what the text says. It says, salvation is a gift of God, not of yourselves. Not of ourselves. I think sometimes we can get confused as to how gifts work, but they're not typically given to oneself. (laughs) But we may use language to describe buying something that we use as I bought a gift for myself. And to my shame, Carrie has said often that I bought these shoes for my birthday, meaning that you didn't give me a gift for my birthday. (laughs) But that language destroys the notion of gift giving. That's not how gift giving works. Salvation is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation did not originate from us. Salvation, it wasn't purchased by us in any way. One commentator states that the gift of salvation has its origin in God, its basis in grace, 
and it is received by means of faith. And to further push our understanding of the gracious, accomplished reality of salvation as a gift of God, Paul goes on to say that salvation is not by our works. Literally, he's saying salvation is not by any effort of our own. It's not in any way striving to live righteously and not in any right adherence to the law of God. For one, spiritually dead people cannot live righteously. And those made alive spiritually by the grace of God live righteously by the grace of God. No effort on our part will produce salvation, nor will it sustain salvation. It's, it's wholly a work of God. We are saved on the grounds of grace, and that means that salvation is by faith and not by works. And because salvation is a work of God's grace, his free gift, not of ourselves, nor the result of any effort on our part, we have no room for boasting in ourselves. A sober view of God's gracious, accomplished reality for us in salvation is humility. Looking long on that gift of grace will defeat pride. So if you're struggling with pride, if you're seeing yourself as more important than others, if you're tempted to be haughty in your condemnation of the lost, if you're tempted to hold your salvation over them as if it were somehow your own doing, Have you in some ways been responding to others' sin like the Pharisee in Luke 18? Boasting of your righteousness? Trusting in your works? Then you don't have a full, joyful, dependent view of salvation as God's gift of grace. May these verses serve to defeat that kind of pride and promote a biblical humility. May we respond as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Paul says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. But by his doing, his doing, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation is a gracious gift of God attained by faith. It's based on nothing in us or by us, so we boast in God, not ourselves, for his gracious accomplished reality in salvation. Let's look at the final facet. The final facet of God's grace in salvation that define a believer's life. We see that in verse 10. Live in light of God's gracious, determined result in salvation. Live in light of God's gracious, determined result in salvation. A believer's life is defined by the gracious action of God in salvation by God's gracious hope we have in the ages to come and his accomplished reality, but he's also determined the results for us in salvation. And what gracious determined result does he have for those in Christ? Well, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And transitioning to understand God's gracious determined result, another means for us not to boast in ourselves in salvation is to understand that believers are God's new creation. We're his workmanship. All, as all of creation was brought into being by our creator God, our new life in Christ was brought about by our creator God. We have been brought into life by him and we are his creation in Christ. That's salvation. A work of God to bring about spiritual life in what was once spiritually dead, created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we're no longer as we once were. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sin. We're no longer walking according to the course of this world. We no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air. We're no longer described as sons of disobedience. We no longer follow the spirit of this world, living in the lust and flesh of the mind. We're no longer by children of wrath, by nature children of wrath. No, as those in Christ, we are a new creation, the workmanship of God. We've been made alive with Christ raised up and seated with him. We anticipate the ages to come when we will see the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to us because we are a new creation. A new creation by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And just as anything that's been created, there is a determined purpose for that created being, that created thing. We have a gracious determined purpose or result that we're to live in as a new creation of God. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the determined result that God has for us is that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works but created for them. Good works are the determined result of God's gracious salvation in us. We are created anew for good works. We can do good works and they are good because we have been created in Christ Jesus in salvation to do them. And these good works are not self-determined. They are not thought up by the creature, but they've been prepared beforehand by the one who created God. God is in eternity past, purposed good works for those who would be his workmanship, who would be created in Christ Jesus to do them. And so the reason these good works have been prepared beforehand by God is that so we would walk in them. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, encouraging believers who are weighed down with the desire to be with the Lord now, he says in verses 6 and 7, Therefore, being always of good courage, And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. 
It's, it is instructive that in our passage, Paul called, says that we are called to walk in the good works that God prepared before him. One commentator says that we are to walk in them and not to work in them. I think this, again, speaks of the nature of God's grace. God's grace in that we walk by faith, dependent that what God has created and the works that he has prepared beforehand, he will graciously work in us to accomplish. The works we're called to walk in as new creations in Christ are all graciously determined by God. And this gracious determined result by God is a part of our salvation. God graciously acts in salvation. He gives gracious future hope in salvation. He brings about gracious accomplished reality in salvation so that there is a gracious determined result in salvation. The works that we are to walk in are not separate from salvation. In fact, Paul spends chapters 4 to 6 describing the scope of these determined results that we're to walk in. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Just turn over a page or two. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It is no accident that the same walking language is used here as it was in our passage. The good works for which we were created and God prepared beforehand encompass the worthy walk that is laid out for us in chapters 4 and 6. What does it look like to walk in the determined results God has for us in salvation? We'll look at chapters 4 to 6. Now, they certainly aren't the totality of what it means, but they do seem to give a pretty helpful summary of the spheres of life in which we live. If we look at chapters 4 to 5, verse 21, he's speaking of personal and corporate life. Chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, he's talking about married life. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, family life. Chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, there's a master-servant-slave language that could be used for us to describe work life. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, speaks of the spiritual life in which we live. So live in light of God's gracious, determined result in salvation in all of these spheres and areas of your life. I think so often we struggle with righteous living because we don't see the tie to grace. We see good works as a burden. In conflict with Christ's gracious words to find his yoke easy and his burden light, we find it heavy and burdensome. But God has graciously determined the results of salvation that we might, by his grace, live in them. We can grasp the idea of trusting God for salvation, but then how often do we struggle to understand that we live in that salvation by his grace as well? God, who is gracious to give life to that which is dead, is gracious to preserve and persevere that same one in the works he has for them. So live confidently in the grace of God. Uh, This is one area, I think, where the body of Christ is so necessary. Helping one another see God's grace at work in our heart's responses, in our life. We talk often about our role in calling one another to holiness. Helping one another to recognize and put to death sin. 
But I think we don't often engage in helping one another to see where God has graciously given us victory or graciously enabled vital ministry with one another or graciously helped us to put sin to death. What an encouragement it would be to help each other to see God's grace more evidently by pointing it out when we see it at work in one another. Let's do more of that kind of work. More of that kind of gracious work in one another. As we close, I know there are those here who struggle to comprehend this kind of grace. You might be thinking, there's no amount of grace that could overcome the sin that I've committed. There's no measure of grace that could make me love God. There's no amount of grace that could make me willingly pursue righteousness. God could never love me. I'm beyond the love of God. I'd instruct you to look back to verse 4. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy with great love, even for you who have rejected him and whose sins are all too known to him, by grace you can be saved through faith. Believe that Christ's death was sufficient to bear the wrath you deserve for sin. Believe that his resurrection and ascension display his triumph over sin and death. Believe that God is gracious and merciful to save even you. By grace, turn away from your sin. Believe that God has in Christ Jesus created you, no longer who you once were, for good works. Live in light of God's grace toward you in salvation. Oh, what a grace that is. A great hymn, Come Thou Fount. One of the verses. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, like would bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So by grace, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. For those of you who are believers, I pray that we would flee our functional ignorance of grace. Don't live as though you are outside of God's grace in persevering in the faith that he's called you to. May we live in light of God's gracious action in salvation. May we live in light of God's gracious hope in salvation. May we live in light of God's gracious accomplished reality in salvation. May we live in light of God's gracious determined result in salvation. May we live in light of God's grace. Now seeing it. Let's pray. Father, it's difficult to truly fathom the depths of of your grace to us in Christ. Each of us are aware of the sin that enslaved us apart from you. 
And yet you acted in grace toward us. We have been made alive. We've been raised up. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've given us great hope by your grace. We anticipate an age to come when our view of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ will be unhindered by the flesh that dims our view now. You've given us by your grace the accomplished reality of our salvation. We have no boasting in ourselves but in you and you alone. You have given us an unimaginable gift of grace. You have by grace created us for the determined good works that you prepared in eternity past for us. Oh Lord, may we labor in them. May we know that by your grace we can persevere in the worthy walk you call us to. May we flee from the temptation to discontentment in this life. The dissatisfaction with our circumstances and truly marvel at the grace that is ours. May we run from thoughts of self-exaltation or self-sufficiency that trap us in pride. And may we see your grace as the means of humility, knowing who we once were and whose we are now. Help us to live in light of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.